0: One of my favourite days of the year is the first day of the festival when tens of thousands of children from across Wales and the West Midlands arrive on the festival site for the Hay Schools days. So it's entirely appropriate that today's podcast features the great Michael Morpurgo, amazingly prolific novelist, a great children's laureate, a man who's done more than almost anybody I can think of for libraries, books into schools, authors into schools, for the sheer joy of storytelling. Here he is delivering the 2012 Hay Library Lecture. Now, we've been working with the public library in Hay for many years and the Hay Festival Foundation funds it partly to extend the opening hours for after-school clubs and to help the professional librarian service. Here Michael ranges from Jarlswood to Gaza to the Kremlin for a spectacular state dinner for Russia's most celebrated librarian. What's extraordinary about his delivery is that it is fuelled by an impassioned and righteous fury, a fury he quite properly focuses on the rights of the child. We could fill a whole podcast year of events Michael has done at Hay over the last few decades, and in this lockdown time, when all our school's programming is going online on the Hay player for free, as always, here he is delivering an extraordinary clarion call that I think everybody should hear now more than ever.
1: Uh, Good afternoon, I don't normally read talks, but
0: this is important.
1: So I thought I'd write something, compose something, which grew out of a Dimbleby lecture, which I did about a year ago. Um, And I've called it uh, Libraries and Books The oxygen of enlightenment. A few years ago I was involved in the making of a documentary for BBC Radio 4 on the history of childhood. We called it the invention of childhood and more recently I've been recording a two-part documentary, Reading Between the Lines, which explores the whole question of how we go about teaching our children to read. In particular the use of synthetic phonics. Working on both series gave me a powerful sense of how children were taught, are taught, and how childhood was thought of and lived by adults and children alike over the ages, of just how long it has taken and is still taking for the lives of children to emerge from the dark ages of war, poverty, exploitation, and neglect. I would maintain that the closing of libraries prolongs that neglect, and is indeed an abuse of the rights of the child. I discovered also how it is only comparatively recently that we have begun to talk of the rights of children. Thomas Paine's Rights of Man was published in 1791. Mary Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Women came out in response in 1792. But it wasn't until the 20th of November, 1989, almost two centuries later, that the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child was published. This convention declares that a child should have a right to a name, to a nationality, access to health care, to play and recreation, to survival, to liberty, and to an education, and is not literacy essential to education, and is not the provision and availability of books a cornerstone of literacy. We in Britain have ratified the Convention, but do we live by it? How is it that so many children the world over, and in this country too, still never know the joys of childhood or the benefit of reading? I should like to confine myself to three of these primary rights as laid down in the UN convention rights that all children should enjoy. The right first to survival, to liberty, and in particular today, the right to education. All of these integral to a child's well-being. It will be a personal and sometimes an uncomfortable journey. We shall discover that even under our own noses, in our backyard, these rights have been and still are woefully neglected. For the most part, I'm going to use my own experience as a guide. I am no academic. I was a child once myself, difficult to imagine, I know, and I've been a parent, a grandparent, a teacher in one way or another for 35 years, and a writer for children. So children and books have been at the center of my world all my life. I know this is a lecture, not a storytelling session, which is a shame because if we're honest about it, most of us prefer a story to a lecture. Children and grown-up children listen more intently to stories. They look out of the window less. There aren't any windows, but there we are. Whichever you prefer, you're going to get a little of both, a kind of a story lecture, a weaving of sad stories, happy stories. This will absolutely not be a talk stuffed with statistics. And when you think I digress... Or go off-piste. Please just bear with me. I'll come back. Less is more when it comes to statistics, I find. A few will have to do. Today, 8 million children a year die before the age of 5. That's a holocaust of children every year. 12 million live close to salvation. 69 million children never go to school. A billion of the world's children still live in poverty. But let us not imagine for one moment that it is only elsewhere in the world that the rights of children are so conspicuously neglected. 3.5 million children in our own country are still mired in poverty, and some of the most vulnerable have been appallingly treated. Two lines that will echo through this talk from William Blake, from auguries of innocence. A robin red breast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. Over 200 years ago, Blake, that great visionary poet, pricked the conscience of a nation to consider the plight of its children. I spoke those two lines to camera a couple of years ago outside the barbed wire fence of a place called Wood in Bedfordshire, an immigration removal center for asylum seekers, including families and children, a kind of holding pen before deportation, or whilst final decisions about deportation were being made. Yarlswood was opened in November 2001. Since then, thousands of asylum-seeking families and children had been imprisoned there, sometimes for months. I was with a BBC film crew for the politics show. We wanted to go in, but it was not permitted. I am not surprised for something deeply shameful to us all was going on inside that place. Until 2008, I'd never heard of Yarlswood. Very few people had. We like to keep quiet about such things. Until I happened to see a play at the Young Vic called Motherland by Natasha Walter, a play later staged at the House of Commons. It was performed by Juliet Stevenson Harriet Walter, family and friends, and put on deliberately to raise awareness of the plight of these asylum seekers and of the injustice being done to them. The play was largely told through the eyes of the children imprisoned there, their own stories in their own words. I watched the play in disbelief. This was happening in my country, in Britain, where we so value childhood, where supposedly we so cherish children. In the play, we hear the story of Meltem, a 13-year-old girl from Turkey. It is a true story. My name is Meltem. It was 7 o'clock in the morning in August at our home in Doncaster. We've lived there for six years. They banged and banged on the door. As soon as my mum opened the door, they rushed in. There were 12 of them, 12 big men. They took us to the police station. They told us to wait. They said there is a car coming to take you to the removal centre. The car came, and it was awful. It had a cage. For a minute, I thought to myself, am I an animal? The journey took a long time, and this is where we ended up here in Yaleswood. I tell you, it has no difference from a jail. It has been more than two months I am here so far. For education in here, I get maths for nine-year-olds and jigsaw puzzles. No, they don't give you an education here. I don't think you can get educated when you know you're in prison. I saw an officer slapping a little two-year-old baby because he was playing with lights. And I saw a mother crying for her baby because they wouldn't take her to healthcare, though the baby was vomiting and had a high temperature. The officers were being really nasty, like they're just lowering people down and saying words to make them sadder. At school I was good at science, maths and history. I wanted to become a doctor. My teachers, they were really kind. I miss them all so much. Just being at school and doing normal things with my friends. For a decade or more, we had been locking up asylum-seeking children in this country, thousands of them, and all of them innocent of any crime. But Meltem's story doesn't end here. This story, at least, has an ending we might call happy. Meltem and her mother were released. And now, after years of protest by a dedicated group of campaigners, yes, protest can work if you work at it, Government has changed its mind. Although Yardswood itself has not been closed, at least no children are locked up in there anymore. Now at last, we are promised an ending to the imprisonment of all such children in this country. But it has only just happened. We have to ask, and we should ask this again and again, how on earth men and women, many of them, no doubt parents themselves, sat down around a table and thought this was an acceptable idea in the first place. It was done, of course, out of pragmatism and political and financial expediency, the interests of the child quite ignored. Libraries are closed for much the same reasons, by the way. This was no petty case of right or wrong, but a flagrant abuse of the rights of children. A great wrong has, in part at least, been righted thanks to to the determination of a few valiant campaigners. Fired up by their example and by the sufferings of the children concerned, I wrote my own story, a fictional story of a young Afghan boy who, along with his mother and a dog called Shadow, escape from Afghanistan and find their way to England. Six years later, the family find themselves waiting for deportation, locked up in Jarl's Wood. I called my story Shadow. Writing stories is my way, I suppose, of dealing with the feelings I have about great injustices done to children whenever I come across them. One day, no doubt, we will apologise for Jarl's Wood, just as we did over those unwanted children forcibly expatriated to Australia after the Second World War. Another example of what might be called the bureaucracy of neglect. Not intentionally cruel, Maybe, but often devastating in its collateral damage all the same. Another appalling injustice we have visited upon our children and one that inspired me to write my novel, Alone on a Wide, Wide Sea. It may seem that I seek out abuses of rights, causes to write about or to espouse. It doesn't happen that way. Rather, they seem to seek me out. And very often it is children themselves who bring them to my attention, who open my eyes and touch my heart with their stories. I was in Amman in Jordan with Claire, my wife, some 12, 13 years ago, sent there by the British Council and had the opportunity of talking about stories to Jordanian children, about 80% of whom, of course, are Palestinian refugees, many of them still living in camps. At the end of one session, I asked the teenagers I'd been talking to whether they had any questions. To start with, they were not at all forthcoming and needed some encouragement. But once the first found the courage to speak, the floodgates opened, and I was bombarded with questions. Mixed metaphor, I know, but I like mixed metaphors. Anyway, the question-and-answer session all became very relaxed and jolly, and then I was taken completely by surprise. A teenage girl who had said nothing up to now got to her feet. Somehow I knew, maybe it was from her body language, I can't remember... That she was going to mean whatever she said. She said, I don't want to ask a question. I want to tell you something. The room went quiet. Everyone was listening. You say you write stories that are always based on what is real and true. Something you feel strongly about. I want to tell you something real and true. My family lives here in Jordan, but I do not belong here. I belong in Palestine, it is my home, but I can't live there because it's occupied. I can't even go there. In the West, everyone knows the Israeli side, but no one tells the story of the Palestinians. I want you to tell a story about us. I said, I don't know enough about the lives of Palestinians, nor about the conflict in the Middle East, certainly not enough to write a story about it. But you could try, couldn't you? She said. For many years, I thought about what she said to me and became more and more concerned about the lives of the people, and the children in particular, on both sides of the struggle, both sides, in the Middle East. I think it was a documentary program on the television about the walls the Israelis were building on the West Bank and around Gaza that gave me the idea for a story I might write. After a while, it became a story I needed to write, had to write. A robin redbreast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. I come from a generation that grew up in the 50s and 60s with another wall that had divided the world and brought us to the brink of war, a wall that, depending on your point of view, kept people out or kept people in, that defended you or caged you, or maybe both. And here was another wall going up, like the Berlin Wall, at the heart of the most intractable problem in the world, the fault line that threatens to erupt at any time and engulf us all. It's difficult to imagine, but the Cold War had once seemed just as intractable as the conflict in the Middle East does now. Then one day in Berlin, quite suddenly, it seemed at the time, people simply decided enough was enough and tore the wall down. It will happen one day in Israel and Palestine. So in that hope and belief, I wrote my story of a Palestinian, of Palestinian and Israeli children living either side of the wall, their lives already scarred by tragedy. I called it, The Kites Are Flying. Told in part by Max, a journalist visiting the Palestinian side of the wall for the first time, it is the story of Said, a young shepherd boy who has not spoken a word since he witnessed the death of his brother Killed by an Israeli soldier while out flying his kites. Said becomes obsessed with the making of kites, and when the wind is right, sends them off over the wall to an Israeli girl in a wheelchair. She'd been injured when her family car was blown up and her mother killed. Each of Said's kites has a message of peace written on it. At the end of the story, Max is about to, to leave Said for the last time. Said is sitting on the hillside, making his next kite with his sheep all around. This is what happens. I was just about organized and ready to film him again when Saeed sprang to his feet. The sheep were bounding away from him, scattering all over the hillside. Then I saw the kites. The sky above the settlement was full of them. Dozens of them, all colours and shapes, a kaleidoscope of kites. Like butterflies, they danced and whirled around each other as they rose into the air. I could hear shrieks of joy all coming from the other side of the wall. I saw the crowd of children gathered there, every one of them flying a kite. And then one after the other, the kites were released and left to the wind. And on the wind they flew out over the wall towards us. From behind us now, from Said's village, the people came running out as the kites began to land in amongst us and amongst the terrified sheep too. Uncle Yasser picked up one of them. You see what they wrote? Shalom, he said. They wrote, Shalom, can you believe that? All around me, Said's family and many of the other villagers, mothers and fathers, grandmothers and grandfathers, began to clap hesitantly at first. But I noticed then that it was only the children who were whooping and whistling and laughing. The hillside rang with their jubilation, with their exaltation. It seemed to me like a glorious symphony of hope. Sentimental claptrap, I hear you thinking. Maybe. Or simply a hope that a new generation will one day rise above the prejudice and suspicion, hurt and hatred, as we have done in Europe, actually, over the last half century or so. As they have done in South Africa and in Ireland and most recently the Arab Spring in Egypt, indeed all over the Middle East. A process of reconciliation, yes, that's still ongoing. Not complete, is it ever? Complete. It is the children of today, yesterday and tomorrow who will do it all also in Israel and Palestine. In the end, they will do it in Syria too, given half a chance. During the last major Israeli incursion into Gaza two years ago, it is a fact that 347 children were killed. And yes, I know Hamas rockets had been landing in Israel for a very long time and that Israeli children have been dying there too. And I know it is absolutely the right of every nation to defend itself. So most certainly the Israelis have their reasons. I'm sure that most of them believe, as we all do, that a child's life in particular is precious, any child's life, yet 347 Palestinian children died. Wherein all this is a child's right to survival? And then sometime, after I published my kite story, I was asked by Save the Children to become an ambassador for them, to go to the Middle East and see the work they are doing in Israel and Gaza, and to find out whether there is indeed cause for hope. That's why I went there in November 2010. I wanted to hear the children's stories on both sides of the wall, to tell my own stories, to make kites and maybe even fly them if we could. I spent two days in Israel. I visited visited Nevi Shalom, Wakat HaSalam, a cooperative village school, bilingual, binational, the first such school in the country. Here, Arab and Jewish children play together and learn together. I wanted to know what they thought, how they felt about one another. We made kites and we flew them and on the kites they had written without any prompting from me their own messages of peace. Next to Tel Aviv, to a meeting organized by Windows for Peace, a forum where Israeli and Palestinian teenagers can come together to try to reach some understanding of the point of view of the other side, however difficult that might be. There was obvious resentment, and hurt. But no anger, no bitterness. The very fact that these young people were there together and talking seemed to me to be hopeful. I learned from them that both communities felt hemmed in, caged in. The Israelis by the states that surround them and threaten their very existence, and the Palestinians by the walls the Israelis have built, and by the takeover of their land, the building of settlements. With the best will in the world, I could see it would be a long time before Israeli and Palestinian kids would be flying kites over these walls. It would take time, they said. Maybe their grandchildren would see peace. No, said one of them. I think it will be my grandchildren's grandchildren before they fly kites. But they will do it. There will be peace one day. But then came my two days in Gaza. Just getting in was a nightmare. Gaza itself, as you probably know, is a narrow strip of land only 8 kilometers wide in places and barely 20 kilometers in length. I knew the dimensions before I went in, but until you see the place for yourself, you can't imagine it. The land and its people are under siege, caged, with wall on three sides and blockaded by warships out at sea. Even if you're with Save the Children, I discovered you might not get in, to my dismay. My companion from Save the Children, Kate Redman, was turned back by Israeli border guards. No reason was given. We're all used to being processed at airports and frontiers to some degree, but this was entirely different. What happened next at the Gaza crossing seemed designed to isolate and maybe even to humiliate. There were rigorous questions about my intentions in Gaza. My bags drummaged through, and then at last I was allowed through into a 100-meter-long steel tunnel. It was like a set from Doctor Who. I was alone except for the surveillance cameras watching me. Then I was out into a walkway about two kilometres long, completely caged in with a kind of no-man's-land, a blasted wilderness of rubble and ruin stretching out as far as the eye could see on either side of me. Halfway down I heard the sound of a shot being fired from a watchtower high on the wall, now behind me. It sounded <coughs> to a country boy like me as if someone were shooting rabbits. All around, young Palestinian boys were racing around on their donkeys and carts, whooping and shrieking. I had no idea what they were doing at the time. I was in another world. I didn't know who was doing the shooting. In this other world, I went the next day to visit a hospital for malnourished babies, and then on to a project for blind children, both funded by Save the Children. These were children, much like those at Yarl's Wood, walled in, imprisoned, caged. A robin red breast in a cage puts... All heaven in a rage. I went to talk to children in a school in Gaza City, made kites again, flew them, but sadly not over any wall. I discovered no one is allowed within 300 meters of the wall that surrounds Gaza. But we made kites all the same. Some of them wrote on their kites, rights and peace. Hamas, who controls what can and cannot happen in Gaza, would not allow boys and girls to fly their kites together in public on the beach, I was told. So we went to the park, Le Jardin de Paris with a high wall all around, and we flew them there. This was the only green space I saw in Gaza City. I have to tell you, they have the saddest zoo in the world there. They had a zebra once, and it died. So now they have a donkey, painted with black and white stripes. The main attraction these days. Sad. Sad. Here in the Jardin de Paris, I flew kites with the children of Gaza. There was more laughter than wind, but that was fine. And afterwards, I was invited to a family house of one of the kids I had met, and we talked, and we drank tea, and I read them a story. They told me their story of the day the Israelis attacked them, when the white phosphorus shells came down on them, and the roof of their house fell in. There were burn marks and holes all over the carpet. A day or so later, on my way out of Gaza, I find myself waiting at the Palestinian Authority Barrier. This is in the middle of no man's land, between the Hamas-controlled checkpoint on the Gaza side and the Israeli wall. Israelis and Hamas don't talk to one another, so that's why you need the Palestinian Authority in between to process passports. The border had been closed when I got there. Only an hour before, it seems, two boys had been shot close to the wall. Around me I saw those youngsters again, hundreds of them out with their donkeys and carts, collecting rubble to be recycled, I learnt, for building blocks in Gaza City. No new building materials were allowed in. Earlier that morning, before I got there it seems, some of the scavengers had ventured too close to the wall and had been fired at and wounded. I waited in the heat for long hours. With me were dozens of the sick and the frail from Gaza City, young babies, the elderly in wheelchairs accompanied by relatives, many of them trying to get to hospital across the border through the wall. All around me was this wasteland of rubble, once an industrial complex constructed with money from the EU for the people of Gaza, but which had since been reduced by bombing and shellfire, and was now all desolation and ruin. I stood in amongst these ruins watching the kids at work, coming and going with their donkey carts. They didn't seem worried. So I wasn't worried. I just wanted to get out of this place. I heard the shots, then the screaming, saw the kids running to help their wounded friends. Now I really was outside the comfort zone of fiction. A doctor from Médecins Sans Frontières told me that the shots were fired not by snipers, but from the watchtowers on the wall, and that these scavengers were routinely targeted remotely, electronically, from Tel Aviv, which was over 25 kilometers away. Spot and strike, the Israelis call it. It was like a video game, a virtual shooting. Only it wasn't. There was blood. His trousers were soaked in it. The bullets were real. I saw the boy close too, saw his agony as the cart rushed by me. Many like him, the doctor told me, ended up maimed for life. Here was a child, caged and under siege being deliberately targeted, his right to survival, the most basic of all children's rights being utterly ignored. UNICEF says that 26 children were shot like this in 2010. The boy I saw was called Shamek, I discovered. He lives in a house with 15 family members and was out there earning what money he could in the only way he knew how. When I think about it, it isn't just the shock and the horror of that one terrible moment that I remember. What will live with me as well are the voices of the children I met in a library in Gaza City, the stories they told me, the blind boy who said his greatest wish was to worship at the mosque in Jerusalem, and the girl in the same group who told me that it wasn't the Israeli children that she hated, but the soldiers. She wanted to be friends with Israeli children. Her greatest wish? Freedom, she said, and peace. Those 49 children massacred last Friday in Syria wanted the same. Life was their right, as well as freedom and peace. I'm sure it's our wish too, to set our children free, all of them, wherever they are. Free to enjoy their childhood, to live in peace and security, free from fear and poverty, disease and ignorance. As I've said, under the UN Convention on the Rights of Children, children don't simply have a right to survival and liberty, they have this right to education, and surely to the best education we can give them. Once we have protected children and ensured their survival from starvation and disease and war, the most important right we owe them is education, a freedom from ignorance. Ignorance is simply a cage, another kind of a cage, a robin redbreast in a cage it's all heaven in a rage. Although in this country we are certainly better off in terms of the ravages of war and famine, we have no reason at all to be complacent. When it comes to education, we need to ask ourselves the question, are we doing the best for our children here at home? The answer is I'm afraid that we are not. That far too many of our children are failing, which means that we are failing our children. We are responsible, not just government and teachers, are blamed constantly, but all of us. And what is it that banishes ignorance? Knowledge and understanding. And where does a child learn knowledge and understanding? From good homes, good schools, yes, and good libraries. Close down a library and you cut children off from the oxygen of enlightenment. In so doing them, doing that, you deny them a fundamental right the right to a good education. Yet, we are in the process right now of closing down some 600 public libraries. 600! In the land of Shakespeare, Milton, Dickens, Lewis Carroll, Tolkien, Dahl and Pullman, we are slashing and burning a child's right to education, to culture, to literature. How shameful is that? A few nights ago, in the dead of night, police and officials came to Kensal Green Library. It was a book raid. Not a drugs raid, a book raid. The library was emptied of its books. And the plaque commemorating its opening 112 years ago by Mark Twain was removed. Like thieves in the night they came. How shameful is that? The playwright Michael Frane condemned the move. They took the books out, the plaque down, so the library is now an unlibrary. In the way that people became unpersons in the darkest days of the Soviet Union, I hope they took the titles off the book as well, removing unbooks from an unlibrary. Who could possibly object? The biographer Sir Michael Holroyd said, "The wanton destruction of the Kensal Rise Library: its books removed, its history erased." is a gross act of Philistinism which will bring lasting shame to all involved. We are involved. Time for another story. It's one that I came across in Russia when I visited there some time ago. There was an extraordinary happening to which I was invited. This is the true bit of the story, so listen. (laughs) It was a gathering of four 100 chosen librarians from all over Russia. On my first evening in Moscow, I found myself, this is true, the first evening, I found myself in the Kremlin, a glittering palace of gold and white, buzzing with people talking about books, soldiers in attendance as waiters and an orchestra playing. It was a great celebratory evening, the kind of glitz you would never find at a conference for librarians in England, more's the pity. In fact, it was a celebration of librarians, the unsung heroes of the book world, of the value of the work they do in bringing books to children and children to books. So this was dear to my heart. On the last night of this conference, there was a prize-giving. It was all a little bit confusing because they would speak in Russian, which was most unfair. However, right at the end of an evening that had gone on for far too long, as all prize-givings do, the last prize-winner was announced. As he stood up, a rather diminutive little man in an ill-fitting suit, 400 librarians rose to their feet and began huzzahing like Russian troops at Borodino. I turned to my mind and I asked her, what was so special about him? Ah, she said, he is the most famous librarian in all of Russia. He lives in a town a long way away. One day, his library caught fire. With no thought for his own safety, he rushed into the building and began to carry out arms full of books. Inspired by his courage and determination, the townspeople followed suit, so that before the building burnt to the ground, they had saved about three quarters of the books in the library. Thousands of them. Isn't that good, she said. Yes, I said. (laughs) And the story doesn't end there, she said. He told the townspeople to take the books home and look after them, as many as they could. And when the library was rebuilt, and he was sure it would be, then they could bring them all back, and that is exactly what happened. So with tears in my eyes, I huzzahed along with the rest of them. (laughs) As I was huzzahing away, I thought to myself, you have to tell this story. Because libraries matter, because people who work in them matter, because the children who discover reading in them matter free access to books, and the encouragement of the habit of reading, these two things are the first and most necessary steps in education. That librarian knew it. Librarians and teachers and parents all over the country know it. It is our children's right. It is also our best hope and their best hope for the future. So I came home and I wrote my own library story. There are not many of them about It's called I Believe in Unicorns, and I don't care if you've read it already, just go to sleep quietly. I shall finish by reading it to you. You'll find it in any good library, (laughs) if that library is still open. Mop, mop. And a glass of water. I Believe in Unicorns. My name is Thomas Porich. I was seven years old when I first met the unicorn lady. I believed in unicorns then, and because of her, I still believe in unicorns. My little town, hidden deep in its own valley, was an ordinary place. I know that now, but when I was seven, it was a place of magic and wonder to me. It was my place, my home. I fished the stream below the church, tobogganed the slopes in winter, swam the lake in summer. On Sundays, my mother and father would take me on walks and I'd roll down the hills over and over and end up lying there on my back, giddy with joy, the world spinning around me. I never did like school, though. It wasn't the school's fault, nor the teachers. I just wanted to be outside all the time. I longed to be running free up in the hills. And as soon as school was over, it was back home with some bread and honey and then out to play. But one afternoon, my mother had other ideas. She had to do some shopping in town, she said, and wanted me to go with her. I hate shopping, I told her. I know that, dear, she said. That's why I'm taking you to the library. It'll be interesting, something different. You can listen to stories for an hour or so. It'll be good for you. There's a new librarian lady, and she tells stories after school to any children who want to come and listen. Everyone says she's wonderful, but I don't want to listen, I protested. My mother simply ignored all my pleas, took me firmly by the hand and led me to the town square. She walked me up the steps into the library. Be good, she said, and she was gone. (laughs) I could see there was an excited huddle of children gathering in one corner. I was just about to walk out in disgust when I noticed they were all jostling each other as if they were desperate to get a better look at something. So I went a little closer. Suddenly they were all sitting down and hushed and there in the corner I saw a unicorn. He was lying absolutely still, his feet tucked neatly under him. I could see now that he was made of carved wood and painted white, but he was so lifelike that if he'd stood up and trotted off, I wouldn't have been the least surprised. Beside the unicorn and just as motionless stood a lady with a smiling face, a bright flowery scarf around her shoulders. When her eyes found mine, her smile beckoned me to join her. Moments later, I found myself sitting on the floor, watching and waiting. When she sat down, slowly on the unicorn, I could feel expectation all around me. The unicorn story, cried a little girl. Tell us the unicorn story, please, miss. The lady talked so softly that I had to lean forward to hear her, but I wanted to hear her. Everyone did because every word she spoke was meant and felt and sounded true. The story was about the last two magic unicorns alive on Earth who had arrived just too late to get on Noah's Ark with all the other animals. So they were left, stranded on a mountaintop in the driving rain, watching the ark sail away over the great flood into the distance. The waters rose and rose around them until their hooves were covered. They swam and they swam. They swam for so long. They swam so far that, in the end, they turned into whales. This way, they could swim more easily and they could dive down to the bottom of the sea. But they never lost their magical powers and they kept their wonderful horns, which is why there are to this day, children, whales with unicorns' horns. And they are called narwhals. And sometimes, when they've had enough of the sea and want to see children like you again, they swim up onto dry land, find their legs and become unicorns again magical unicorns, after she had finished. No one spoke. It was as if we were all waking up from some dream. We didn't want to leave. The hour flew by. On the way home, my mother asked me, what was it like, dear? All right, I suppose. (laughs) I told told her. But at school the next day, I told all my friends what it was really like about the unicorn lady. Everyone called her that, and her amazing stories, and the fantastic, magical storytelling power of the unicorn. They came along with me to the library that afternoon. And day after day, as the word spread, the little group in the corner grew until there was a whole crowd of us. One afternoon, the unicorn lady took out from her bag a rather old and damaged-looking book, charred at the edges. It was, she told us, her very own copy of The Little Match Girl by Hans Christian Andersen. Has it been burnt, miss? I asked her. This is the most precious book I have, Thomas, she said. I shall tell you why. When I was very little, I lived in another country. There were wicked people in my town who were frightened of the magic of stories and the power of books because stories make you dream and think and books make you want to ask questions and they didn't want that. I was there with my father when they came to the library and took out the books. Then they burnt them. I was watching with my father, when suddenly he ran forward and plucked a book out of the fire. The soldiers beat him with sticks, but he held onto the book and wouldn't let it go. It was this book, Thomas. It's my favorite book in all the world. Would would you like me to read it to you? And so she did. I've never forgotten that story. Then, one summer morning, early war came to our village and shattered our lives. I remember the moment I first saw the planes. I was outside. My mother had sent me out to open up the hens and feed them, and that was when the bombs began to fall. Far away at first, then closer, closer. We were all running then, running up into the woods. We could hardly see the town anymore for the smoke. We waited until we were sure the bombers had all gone, then ran back home. We were luckier than many. Our house had not been damaged. It was the center of our town that had been the hardest hit. As I came into the square, I saw the library in flames. The unicorn lady was coming down the steps, struggling to carry the unicorn staggering under its weight. I ran up the steps to help her. Look after the unicorn, Thomas, she said. She was coughing and spluttering. "The, The books, she gasped. The books! And she ran back into the library and came out again a short while later. Her arms piled high with books. Everyone ran to help and that was when the great book rescue began. We children formed a chain across the square from the library to the cafe opposite. Books were passed from hand to hand, stacked up on the floor of the cafe and on the pavement outside. The rescue went on until the fire was burning so strongly that the fire brigade wouldn't let us inside anymore. The unicorn lady came out last of all and sat down on the foot of the steps on the unicorn. And we gathered all round her as if waiting for a story. We did it, children, she said. We saved all we could, didn't we? Do not worry. We shall build up our library again. Everyone can take home as many books as they can and care for them. Then in a year or two, when we have our new library built, we'll carry the magic unicorn back inside and tell our stories again. And so it happened, just as the unicorn lady said it would. Every family in the town took a few books home, in wheelbarrows, some of them. And when the new library opened, we all brought our books back. The unicorn lady and I carried the unicorn back up the steps that day with the whole town cheering us on, the flags flying and the band playing. And now, all these years later, we have peace in our valley. The unicorn lady is still the town librarian, and the children still come to hear her tell her magical stories. So me, I'm now a writer a weaver of tales. And if from time to time I lose the thread of my story, all I have to do is to go and sit on the magic unicorn, and my story flows again. So believe me, I believe in unicorns. I believe in them absolutely.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast, which is, as ever, supported by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers. If you'd like to hear more from Michael or from any of the extraordinary golden age of children's writers who are taking part in the Hay Festival programme for schools this week, please visit the Hay Player. Thank you.